Well, and I do greet you, and good morning to you from, uh, from our uh, place in Chicago at Wheaton College, the Wheaton College Graduate School, but it's good to be back here uh, in Kentucky. I've had the privilege of living in Kentucky. I actually did part of my PhD work uh, here at, at Asbury Seminary, which makes me an alum. You only have to take one course to be an alum. I wanted you to know that. Not that you should suddenly drop out and tell everyone that you're an alum, but uh, it's better to be a graduate than to be an alum. But uh, I appreciate so much the opportunity to be your chaplain, particularly for your invite. Got to know chaplain a little bit when we were uh, at the faculty retreat, which, by the way, they planned in Gatlinburg, Tennessee, which in and of itself is a fascinating cross-cultural choice. But anyway, that's another story for another, <laughs> another day. I studied anthropology here at Asbury and got to put something into practice with the faculty retreat in Gatlinburg, because it's an anthropologist's dream. But anyway, another story for another day. Uh, we heard the text read at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning at verses 16 and 17. There's a lot of context going on here that um, I'll briefly touch on just to be faithful to where we are in the text. 2 Corinthians, of course, is a time when Paul is defending his apostleship. The church at Corinth had lots of uh, troubles and struggles, difficulties, divisions, uh, immorality, and more. And Paul's sort of admonishing them at different places. And then He's doing so with the authority and strength of language that comes as he writes to us what is 2 Corinthians to us. It's not the second letter he wrote to the Corinthians. It's actually the fourth that we know of because they're mentioned in those other, uh, in those other letters. But this is the one preserved for us in the word of God. And I'm specifically going to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning at verses 16 to 21. You've heard it read. And four things I want us to look at today that are going to speak to the moment we're in and the mission we're on, right? I don't know if you've noticed this, but we live in a pretty divided world, and the division seems to be growing. And so I'm uh, here in town to do, doing some at Asbury Seminary, as, some at Asbury University, to talk about uh, that outrage and how we might respond. And 2 Corinthians chapter 5, I think, is a helpful passage in that space and place. So four things. I'll just tell you what my outline is now. We get a new perspective sent on a mission of reconciliation representing Jesus and his kingdom because of the cross. Pretty simple sentence that lays out my outline. So number one, we get a, a new perspective, a new way of looking at things. So here's what it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning at verse 16. Under point number one, we get a new perspective. It says, from now on then, we don't know anyone in a purely human way. Even if we had known Christ in a purely human way, yet now we no longer know him like that. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, there is new creation. Old things have passed away, and look, new things have come. Now, a lot of us are super familiar with verse 17, and we'll get to that in just a minute. But verse 16 speaks about a new way of seeing other people. It says, from now on, right, it, right before that, it says he died for all so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for the one who, was died, who died for them and was raised. And then the transition is, from now on then, uh, we don't know anyone in a purely human way. In other words, we've got a new way of looking at people, right? We look at people differently through different lenses than we would without Christ. And this is really key to the discussion that I want to share with us today, is from now on then, we don't see anyone in a purely human way. Now, 2,000 years ago, a purely human way might be distinguished by different factors than they might be today. Might be where you are, the moment you live in, the moment I live in. And so, but either way, the purely human way is, well, how do people see one another in a purely human way today? Well, we live in a world, increasingly, many of us living here uh, in the United States, but I'm going to talk globally in just a minute, where increasing numbers of people are being discipled by their cable news choices 
and they're being spiritually shaped by their social media feed, and the end result is they end up seeing people through the lens of their cable news choice or their social media feed, and the end result is they're being shaped by the world. And they might say, well, this is an important thing. I've got to stand up for this or that. But it does remind us that how we see people matters, or else Paul wouldn't have included that here, right? Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he writes, from now on then, we don't see anyone, we don't know anyone in a purely human way. And he talks about how this relates to us knowing Christ. He says, even if we've known Christ in a purely human way, yet now we no longer know him like that. So, the big picture from the beginning, we got a new look, we've got new lenses through which we see the world. Right, so now we see people who differ than us, and we have to. Te- and here's where it gets challenging. We have to teach people in our ministries, in our care, where, where we're leading and serving. We have to teach people that when they see somebody who disagrees with them, or even who is vehemently uh, against them, we have to see them as people made in the image of God, worthy of dignity and respect. That changes the way we see people, right? From now on, then, we don't know anyone in a purely human way. We've got a new look, new lenses through which we see the world. But what's interesting is, is it's tied together somehow to the new life, right? Because it says, therefore, right? Whenever there's in the Bible come across the therefore, you'll, you'll, you'll hear this in hermeneutics if you haven't already. Uh, if you ever hear, see a therefore, ask, what's it there for? It's connecting, it's connecting the prior passage, right? The prior theme. And verse 17, I mean, probably you know, if you've been a Christian, you've probably made a, had a plaque or something like this somewhere in your life, right? It says, uh, it says uh, if anyone's in Christ, there is new creation. Old things passed away, look, new things have come. Now again, that new life, it's not, a, it's not the Christian life, it's not about turning over a new leaf, it's about we were dead in our trespasses and sins, and God in his grace made us alive. We got a new life, right? a new creation, and this is key, right? So there's a connection, though, between the new look, the new lenses, and the new life that we have been given. We got a new life. It's connected to the new look, the new lenses through which we see the world. A new life gives us a new way to look at things. Again, new life, new look, new lenses through which we see the world. Now, I've touched my glasses several times, so you can actually see that I am wearing glasses. How many wearing glasses? Don't be ashamed. Just put them up there, okay? Okay. When I was a kid, they made fun of me for wearing glasses. They called me uh, four eyes, and I don't know if ever in your life you've been called that. I think that insult has sort of waned over time, and, uh, but, uh, but my... Um, I had this uh, strangest experience uh, once, is that I never got over the fact that my 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 mother didn't tell me the truth about my glasses. Let me explain. So I was a I, I was a kid, and I grew up on Long Island, just outside of New York City. And my mom came home one day after we went to the eye doctor, and later in the day told me I was going to need glasses. And she she tried to put a positive spin on it. She said she called me Eddie, and you may not. And uh, she she said she said Eddie, you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna have new glasses. She didn't say you're gonna have to. You're gonna you're really stuck with. She said, you're gonna have new glasses. And she had this like happiness in her voice, and I'm like, Mom, kids are gonna make fun of me. And she said, Eddie, they're not gonna make they're not gonna make fun of you. And then she broke the news. I had to ask, also wear an eye patch. And so I said, Mom, for sure they're gonna make fun of me now. She said, No, Eddie, they're just gonna say you're like a pirate, like you're a cool pirate. At that point, I realized my mother wasn't always completely honest with me about things throughout our lives. So I went to school that day and was, uh, was made fun of. So uh, fast forward a few decades, and 
Uh, I have three daughters, which is just the greatest blessing in my life there. Um, I was just in Montreal with my oldest daughter, just flew here from Montreal. Uh, but they're, uh, they're 15, 17, and 21, so they're amazing, but they have so many words. But anyway, that's another story for another day. Um, and so, so, so my, old, my youngest daughter's named Caitlin, and she's uh, two years ago, she was 13, now she's 15. And Donna came home and said to me, pulled me aside and said, listen, I don't want you to make a big deal about this, which tells her she knows me. And, uh, but Caitlin's going to have to get glasses. You need to not make a big deal about this. And so, of course, I did. And so I did not. So I came to Caitlin and said, Caitlin, listen, I hear you have to wear glasses. And, and, and she, said, she, said, um, she said, Dad. And she kind of mentally rolled her eyes at me. She's not allowed to physically roll her eyes, but you can actually tell in a middle schooler what the meant. She looks at you and goes, Dad. She says, Dad, glasses are cool today. I said, I, thought, I didn't believe her for a moment. She says, oh, yeah, Dad, people go to like the store and buy frames without prescriptions, people are nodding their head. This is stunning to me. I was so happy for her and simultaneously deeply bitter about my own childhood experience. <laughs> right? so, so, I, um, so she got her glasses. But you see, she wears glasses for, for fashion. I wear glasses for seeing. And when they move on my head, right, they, they kind of slide down my nose when I talk or they'll knock around. So right now, you're, you're gone. <laughs> Welcome back. Right? So I actually, my glasses, my lenses, this is, I need my lenses to rightly see the world. And they can get out of focus. I'll tell you uh, a true but funny story. I actually, I'm the interim teaching pastor of a church in Chicago called the Moody Church. It's not called that because we're sometimes happy, sometimes sad, but it's named after a famous evangelist named D.L. Moody. And it's a wonderful church, and it's an historic church in downtown Chicago. But part of being in downtown Chicago means it's, people are in there for two or three years. Uh, it's, not, it's not connected to the school with the same name, but some people go there. And so everyone sort of like sees who's gone through Moody Church, has this era they remember, and then they watch it online all over the world. And they send letters in. So I've made it as the interim. I've been the interim for, um, I just had my third anniversary as the interim, which tells me we're doing the interim thing wrong. Uh, <laughs> I've been the interim pastor longer than three of their pastors were the pastor. Uh, everyone remembers the famous pastors like, like Warren Wearsby or Harry Ironside or, or Erwin Lutzer, who's now Pastor Emeritus. Um, but there are all these, there's these pastors, lesson for those of you who want to go into pastoral ministry. When you follow a long-tenured pastor, yours is generally not. Uh, but that's, so they have these little, you know, what, year and a half pastorates. So I'm serving there, and uh, I, I decided as an interim, you shouldn't make a lot of changes, but there are some changes you want to make so that when the new pastor comes in, that pastor can sort of decide whether to continue the changes you made or go back, whatever. So I'm trying to make some space for the new pastor. So I, I for example, I, uh, I, I stopped using the pulpit. I got a few letters about that. Um, I, I brought in a screen next to, so the verses are here on the screen so I can explain the verses. Um, I don't wear a tie or a suit all the time. Got lots of letters about that. And, and, and I tend to save these letters. Sometimes they're signed, sometimes they're unsigned. But remember, Tens of thousands of people watch this church online because they've been at some point here. So this is my favorite letter I've ever received ever in ministry. I'm going to save it for you and read it to you because you're going to get letters like this as well. All right, here's what it, here's what it said. This is actually unedited, just me reading. It's right here, right here. I just took a screenshot right there. Here's what it says. It says, I listened to your August 13th sermon at Moody Church online. After listening to it once, praise God, right? He's a double listener. 
Uh, it's, it's a he. He, signed, he actually signed it. It says, um, I listened again because I was awestruck, right? How awesome is that? With the number of times you adjusted your glasses while preaching. <laughs> really? Is that, is that, am I telling the truth? It's right there. It's just this. Okay. So the second time I listened, I saw in the first 36 minutes of your sermon, which some of you right now are a little stunned by the first 36 minutes of a sermon. It's a, it's a kind of Moody Church has long sermons. So the second time I listened, I saw in the first 30 minutes of your sermon, you adjusted your glasses 74 times. And then you took them off, he says, with this panache. So I counted no further. I mean, you just, you just see him writing it. It's awesome, right? It says this, it appears at this point, he takes a break, gets a calculator, and comes back and says this was an average of once every 30 seconds. But keep in mind, he goes on with enthusiasm, this was an incomplete count because some of the time, scripture or your sermon was on the screen and I could not see you. You could just feel the passion. I tell you this in Christian love. It always says that, no matter how mean they are. This one isn't that mean. This one's all right. I love this one. I tell you this in Christian love because I know you're interested in being aware of anything that may distract listeners from hearing what you are preaching, teaching. So I hope you will accept this knowing that I want your ministry to be as effective for Christ as possible. Right? He signed it. It was actually, I made changes. Listen, you let your critics be your teachers, right? So I made changes in light of this. I saw a little product on Shark Tank called Nerd Wax. Right? I put the Nerd Wax right in there. They don't move around as much. Now, I know I saw a couple of you turn to one another saying, I'm going to count how many times he touches his glasses before the end. Don't be that person. Nobody likes that person, so don't be that person. <laughs> but here's the thing, right? I don't wear glasses for fashion. I wear them for seeing and when I move around, they get knocked out of place. I have to put them back in. And if it's true that we've got a new life that's connected to a new look and new lenses through which we see the world, these gospel lenses by which we're to see other people, the more tumultuous the time, the more likely they are to be knocked out of place. And some people say we're in the most divided time they've ever seen in our country. I always want to say to them, do you not have a history book? Have you not heard of the Civil War? Um, I would rank that higher. But certainly in my lifetime, this has been the most divided I've ever seen the nation. And in many ways, it's not just a national thing, because again, right here in front of the pulpit says, remember the world. I just came from Quebec, where highly nationalist parties won the election, speaking out against immigrants and refugees. Or go to Europe with me, where for the first time, people are turning on one another in ways that they haven't done in a century. Or walk throughout Southeast Asia. Walk throughout, I mean, all around the world, there's this growing division and part of the answer, and I recognize it's not just going to be Christians who speak into the issues to solve all the problems in the world, but part of the answer has to be Christians who recognize that as they're knocked around in tumultuous time, they need to readjust and refocus their gospel lenses to see people and to lead churches, ministries, Bible studies, and more that see people as people made in the image of God worthy of dignity and respect. And that's not always easy. Because what's happened in our world today is people are now being shaped again by the world. Now, the world today is different than the world back then. The world today might literally be a cable news choice. But they're being shaped by that. 
and we've seen the shaping of social media and more. So number one, we get a new perspective. Right? We need a new way of seeing. We've got a new life, a new look, new lenses through which we see the world. Number two, uh, sent on a mission of reconciliation. Sent on a mission of reconciliation. Let me continue by reading verse 18 of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It says, now everything is from God. Now it's actually referring to really way back into the passage. Verse 14 talks about being compelled by love. Uh, throughout here, it's, so everything is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Now I want you to notice the pattern, right? There's, we've been reconciled given the ministry of reconciliation, right? We're not the means of reconciliation to God. This is what we're talking about to God. That's Jesus' death on the cross for our sin and in our place. But we now have the ministry of reconciliation has been entrusted to us. Again, let me read it. Now, everything is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. Now, it almost sounds like, you know when you're in a Bible study and you're reading a passage and you, you just miss a line and you go back to the line before? It almost sounds repetitive because it is intentionally repetitive. The New Testament writers sometimes use parallelisms where the words are similar, not usually exactly the same. So it goes on, that is in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed the message of reconciliation to us. So we have the ministry and the message of reconciliation. The ministry and the message of reconciliation has been given to us. So again, we get a new perspective, a new life, a new look, new lenses through which we see the world. And part of those lenses need to include that the world is in a broken relationship with the creator of women and men around the world and the world itself. And he's going to eventually reconcile all things. This is not the passage to build an all things reconciliation theology on. There are some and they're important. But this reconciliation says, who reconciled us to himself through Christ gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Right again, Christ, God reconciling the world, that's a bigger picture, to himself but then says not counting their trespasses against them. So let's take just a moment about one of the great needs that we must see if we're going to live faithfully on the mission Jesus has sent us. Here's the reality, I think, for a lot of people in um, evangelicalism, if I can use that word. A lot of people in evangelicalism have lost the focus of the root of the word, the evangel, the gospel, and its word flows from it, evangelism. Right, so that's sharing the good news of the gospel, the necessity of that. Now, I will tell you, I, love, I'm, I speak at conferences. I love speaking at conferences. I'm kind of a motivational speaker who lives in a van down by the river. So I do, and you have to be a certain age to get that reference. So if you're not within that 10-year gap, ask somebody who left. Um, but I'm just telling you, it's life-changing. Um, but, you know, it's fascinating to me that we could spend all, all, day, all our days going to conferences, never the ending of conferences, and we'd hear about so, so many things that are true and they're right and they're good. The world's broken. There's injustice. There's racial injustice. There's gender conversation and challenges of where we fit and how we respond in the midst of this. There's, there's climate change. There's, I mean, we can, we can do a million conversations and I see many, many Christians engaging in those conversations, and they tend to say somewhere along the way if they're evangelicals, oh, yeah, yeah, we believe in evangelism too. Can I just tell you historically, 
you're about 20 years away from not caring about evangelism at all when you say we believe in evangelism too. I want you not to miss that just historically. We'd be naive at best, reckless at worst, to not acknowledge that people who love Jesus as much as we love Jesus, who love the Word of God as much as we love the Word of God, stood in their chapels and their buildings and their churches and said, we're going to be focused on these issues and lost a focus on proclaiming the good news of the gospel. Now, again, I don't expect that you'd be reading my writings or things of that sort. I, I write about um, a lot of issues of injustice in our world. And uh, I, get, I get a lot of angry letters from people as an evangelical who speaks up and speaks out on issues of, um, well, a lot of issues, doesn't matter for here. But I want you to know that I share the concern that so many of us have about the brokenness of the world. But I also can't read the pages of Scripture and not also care about the fact that people without Christ are into a Christless eternity. I came from a non-Christian home, right? I became of most of my family's not Christians. And when I say they're not Christians, I don't mean like they're another denomination that I don't like. Um, that's sometimes people evangelical, they're not Christians. Well, no. So, so when I see this passage, I'm really struck by the fact that evangelism has fallen on hard times in our world today. Let me just tell you, Don and I were convicted of this. Donna's, Donna's my wife. Um, so Don and I were convicted of this. And um, we actually made a map of our neighborhood. And we mapped out where the um, eight people who lived nearest to us that we knew didn't know the Lord. And we felt a deep sense of call that we were to engage them in the good news of the gospel by the time we lived there. And one at a time, we, 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 first we built relationships with them, right? And, and over the course of the years we lived there, we had the privilege of sharing the gospel with seven of eight of our neighbors. We had the privilege of uh, leading to Christ, a couple that were three doors down this way, uh, and baptizing them and seeing them become key leaders in the church across the street from them, baptized a couple there, actually, who later became missionaries to, uh, to Brazil. Uh, ba- uh, led to Christ a gentleman who lived kind of behind us, who came to our church and found it too, uh, his words, too rock and roll American for him. He was of European, uh, he grew up in Europe, and so he ended up at a wonderful liturgical church that's more traditional, that's teaching and preaching God's word. Um, you, know, you know why? Because here's why. I, I, I don't think we, as Christian leaders with seminary educations, who talk about evangelism, we can't lead what we won't live. And the necessity for us is to prioritize space and place to recognize that we need a new perspective, right? Set on a mission of reconciliation. So it was two, uh, was it two years ago, almost two years ago, that Don and I were going to a meeting in um, Florida in February. Now, we live in Chicago, and Chicago is uh, very Chicago land. They correct you if you say Chicago. We live outside of Chicago. Um, but it gets very, very cold. It got down this winter to negative 27 degrees, not wind chill, but actual temperature, colder than the surface of Mars, colder even than a legalist's heart. And that, <laughs> that's cold. And if you're offended by that, a soul-searching moment might be helpful for you right now. Because you should have said, I agree. Um, not, hey, that's me. Um, so it was February, and Donna came down with me to Florida, and um, we got, we got picked up by Uber. So Uber picks us up, and um, the driver's name is Jane. So we get into the Uber with Jane, and Jane looks, uh, she looks at us and says, Hey, good to see you. Uh, I'm Jane. I said, We're Ed and Donna. And she said, Well, come on in. I've got, uh, I've got uh, you know, a charger. I've got a phone. I've got a charger. I've got water behind the seats, and I've got, you can take anything you want from a little basket in the middle. 
Now, um, you know, Uber drivers are often nice to you because they're trying to earn that five rating. That's real important, right? And, uh, and get a tip, right? So, so and I, I, you know, I think that's great. Um, but when we looked down in the middle at the little basket we could take anything from, there was candy in a strategically placed pocket New Testament. So we knew something was afoot. And, and so, so I, I look at Donna and I communicate with her telepathically. Um, <laughs> We've been married 30 years, and it happens at your 30th anniversary. I know that seems strange to you, uh, but at 30th anniversary, we no longer have to use words. So I just look at her, and she understands the full paragraph, basically me saying, hey, let's roll with this and just have a little bit of fun. And I see totally back with her through her eyes saying, okay, but don't you do anything that will cause me to be unhappy with you. And I said, okay. So we had that, that conversation. So we start driving, and Jane starts talking about, uh, to us, and she says, um, so where did where, where, you guys grow up? And Donna says, Canada, and I grew up in uh, New York City. And, um, you know, she asked several different questions, you know. And then she asked one question, uh, well, what do you, what do, you do? You know, because I said I moved to town three years ago, about two, two years ago at that time. She said, what do you do? So I knew that if I, if I said that, I would give it away. So I said, well, I'm a teacher. What do you do? Just quickly to change the subject. So she says, well, I'm a realtor, and then I drive Uber because I like to meet people. And, and so we keep this conversation going. We're going to O'Hare Airport. It's about 30 minutes from our house. About 15 minutes in the conversation, she asks, well, do you guys have like any spiritual background or any religious beliefs? And Donna looks at me, telepathically communicates, you have to stop this and tell her now. So I, so I did. So I leaned forward. I said, Jane, yes, actually we do. So listen, I'm actually a professor at Wheaton College. I teach, among other things, evangelism. And you are doing so great right now. Um, and she, uh, she, we laughed, and, and I said, Jane, can I just take my phone? I turned on voice memo and said, would you be open to let me interview you about why you do this? And you see, we had lived in Chicago for two years, and this is the first time somebody had tried to share the gospel with us. And now you might say, well, Chicago's not Wilmore, and I get that, but I would say to you there's plenty of Christians who obviously are going to church, maybe loving Jesus, but are not recognizing that part of their role is to be on a mission of reconciliation in a world that's broken and lost. And Jane, so I wrote, and if you're interested, you Google the interview, just Google Jane the Uber driver. It got picked up by several outlets. And so fast forward a little over a week, because the day after we went to Florida, uh, Billy Graham died. So um, I wrote some things, did some things, you know, part of following up to Mr. Graham's death. I hold the Billy Graham chair at Wheaton College where he was a graduate. And so fast forward a week and we're at the funeral in Charlotte. It's based on the tent they built. They reconstructed the Los Angeles tent that they used uh, in his crusade years ago. And people came up to me and a reporter came up to me, a reporter from the New York Times. Um, she, she covers religion there. And we're friends. And she started asking me questions like, who do you think the next, um, you know, the, the next, the next person will be that will kind of carry this on. She asked, you know, what was Billy Graham's legacy? What was, you know, what, how would he fit in today's world? Just questions like that. And then she asked the question, she said, so who's the next Billy Graham? And nobody claims to be that, or at least they shouldn't. Nobody in the family claims to be that. I know that. And nobody should claim that in general. But I was kind of ready for the question because I knew it would be reporters. She said, so who's the next Billy Graham? And I said, Jane, the Uber driver. And she looked at me with a strange look, and I said, well, let me tell you the story. So I told this story, and again, we're friends. So she smiles and she says, man, that's a great story, but it's not making the New York Times. And I understood, but here's the thing. Really, you know, the next Billy Graham, maybe we're talking about the next person who has this mission of reconciliation. You see, there's a, there's a highway that goes back 2,000 years. When Jesus said to his disciples, go make disciples of all nations, they told somebody 
who they shared the gospel with somebody. That person became a disciple, and then they told someone, and they told someone, and they told someone. And 2,000 years later, somebody told you. This Great Commission Highway, 2,000 years, someone told you. And all I'm saying here on this point is don't let your life become a cul-de-sac on that Great Commission Highway. Because when we hear the teachings of Scripture, we know that men and women need the good news of the gospel. So number one, we get a new perspective. Number two, sent on a mission of reconciliation. Some of you are doing the math and you're thinking, he's got two more points and he's got to run out of time. Uh, No, no, the next two points are really, really short. They weren't a few minutes ago, but now they are. Uh, That'll happen to you as well. So uh, number one, we get a new perspective. Number two, sent on a mission of reconciliation. Number three, representing Jesus and his kingdom. Listen to 2 Corinthians 5.20. Paul's actually referring to himself and the group of missionaries that he's with. He's defending his apostleship here. But for 2,000 years, Christians have taken this verse and I think rightly applied it to themselves because we are indeed what Paul describes. It says, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Certain that God is appealing through us, we plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. It's interesting, the word ambassador is used twice in our English Bible, once here and the other place in Ephesians 6 where Paul refers to himself as an ambassador in chains. It's not always easy to represent Jesus and his kingdom, but it is the call that we have. And thinking through the beauty of the kingdom of God and a full, robust understanding of that means we're going to care about the downtrodden, the marginalized, those without. We're going to have a Luke 4, 18 through 20 kind of approach to the gospel. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, has anointed me, preach good news, and he speaks about the poor and the marginalized and the blind. And we're going to have a Luke 19, 10 understanding of the kingdom where Jesus said, I came to seek and save those who were lost. And the same Jesus who said those said, as the Father has sent me, so send I you. So we go into the world as his ambassadors serving the hurting and saving the lost. Now this is so key because we live in a moment when many Christians, particularly evangelical Christians, are kind of unsure of their identity. Or maybe they're kind of sure their identity has been warped in ways that don't glorify and honor God. I'm actually one of those evangelicals, but I'm an evangelical. Right now I'm writing a book with InterVarsity on evangelicalism and its future. And someone asked me, is it a really short book? And, or is it a long book? And, and I'm not discouraged. First, I've read the end of the book and Jesus wins, so there's always that. But I also recognize that we live in a time when Christians have perhaps lost some of the focus and emphasis. It might be different places, different people. But if we come back to our role is to represent Jesus and his kingdom, we cannot go wrong. Number four, and finally. You know what it means when a guest speaker says, and finally? Absolutely nothing, but let's try it anyway. It's interesting because verse 21 is this kind of radical turn in the text. It actually talks about a whole different idea, and it's number one is we get a new perspective, then sent on a mission of reconciliation, representing Jesus and his kingdom, number four, and finally, because of the cross. It says, he made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. There's a lot of pronouns in there. Simplest, it's God made Jesus to, who didn't know sin to be sin for us so we might become the righteousness of God in him. When I think on that truth, 
And that truth becomes the centering truth of my life, not my identity based upon political party or, or, or race, ethnicity, class, not that there's not place and space. We speak up and about all of those issues, and those identities continue in many ways into eternity. There's men and women from every tongue, tribe, and nation, knowable and noticeable around the throne. But when my primary identity is driven by that I'm one who's been changed by the gospel, I'll speak up and I'll speak up in ways that may be different than people who've not been changed by the power of the gospel. Now, the call that we have is laid out in the texts that are prior, but the motivation that we have is laid out in this text, this brief little theological text. It says, he made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us, so we might become the righteousness of God in him. The one who knew no sin died a sinner's death, and in doing so gave us the new life the new look, new lenses through which to see the world, seeing people made in the image of God, worthy of dignity and respect. Then he sent us on a mission of reconciliation, recognizing that men and women without Christ are dead in their trespasses and sins, but in Christ are made alive. We've been given that message. Don't let your life be a cul-de-sac on that Great Commission Highway, representing Jesus and his kingdom as ambassadors. The kingdom has come. The king has come. The kingdom has come. We're made citizens, and citizens are ambassadors but we do so ultimately because of the cross.